Welcome to Raising OKC Kids, Conversations with Metro Family in Oklahoma City. I'm Erin Page, and today I'm joined by Kara Gluck, local mom and public health professional, to talk about CMV, or cytomegalovirus, which affects one in 200 babies born in the United States. Kara is here to mark June as CMV Awareness Month and help families understand this preventable virus. Thanks so much for joining me today, Kara. Thank you so much for having me. And I am excited to talk to listeners about CMV and, you know, help, hopefully help, help anyone and everybody understand a little bit about um, CMV, what it is, how we prevent it, and um, ways that we can move forward in the most healthy way. And we are looking forward to the opportunity to learn from you today. Before we jump in, I want to tell our listeners a bit more about you. Kara has a master's degree in public health and has worked in public health for nearly 20 years. She is mom of Jordan, age 11, and Parker, age 9. Kara is involved with the Oklahoma Family Network and the National CMV Foundation, for which she is an alliance chair for the state of Oklahoma. So Kara, let's start by just learning more about CMV. What is cytomegalovirus? So cytomegalovirus is a virus that is naturally occurring in the environment. It is a virus that has been around for hundreds of years. Um, however, if a pregnant woman is exposed to the virus while she um, is pregnant, she has the risk of passing the virus to her unborn child. If she passes the virus to her unborn child, then there is a potential for that, um, the unborn child to be impacted by the virus. What the virus does is it affects um, organ development. So large organ like liver, spleen, brain, lungs, um, and the development of the organs. And so depending on when that woman contracts the virus and it is transmitted to her unborn child, um, really will have an impact on the amount of effect that the unborn child um, will experience after birth. Thanks for giving us that foundation to start this conversation. Kara, this is personal for you. Tell us your story with CMB. How did your journey begin? So honestly, my journey began um, after Parker was born, actually, um, he was probably about 12 to 18 hours old. Um, I had a natural labor. I went into labor actually at about 37 weeks. Um, my water broke. We went, took Jordan to daycare, dropped her off, went to the hospital. Um, and when I got to the hospital, they determined that I had lost a significant amount of amniotic fluid. And so at that point I was um, put on Pitocin and um, just went through the delivery process. However, when Parker was born, the very first thing that I said to my OB when he handed him to me is what is wrong with him? And the reason I said that is because Parker had um, severe bruising as well as these little blood spots really from the very top of his head to his very, very, very purple little feet. And so that was the first thing that I asked and my OB said, oh, don't worry about it. It was a fast labor. This is just the effect of the labor. 
we were um, put on, moved to um, the labor and delivery floor, just a regular floor room. And really, a, you know, given that opportunity to bond as a family. Um, however, Parker started having challenges with maintaining his body temperature. And so we started doing lots of skin to skin. However, he was nursing well, um, everything was good with his breathing. And they just thought, you know, okay, this is just the effect of maybe um, the medication and really didn't think anything of it. However, when that challenge um, started and continued, then we, we had a very astute floor nurse that said, you know, he looks really jaundiced. And so made the recommendation in the middle of the night to go ahead and do a bilirubin panel. And when they did the bilirubin panel, it was determined that his bilirubin was very, very high. And so for his, um, how old he was. They typically don't check bilirubins until 24 plus hours later. Um, however, at about 18 hours old, um, his bilirubin was well above the normal limits um, and outside of the range for normal. And so um, the pediatrician went ahead and ordered more comprehensive blood work to be done and then placed him under the billy lights. You know, the, um, just the, um, the lights that a lot of kids, a lot of newborns um, actually um, experience having to go under just to help them with processing bilirubin and all of that. However, when we got his blood work back, it was determined he had incredibly low platelets, um, almost a transfusion level, and his bilirubin was very, very high. And so um, there were several other things that were outside of normal range. And so at that point, the, the decision was made for him to be transferred to Integris um, Baptist and for him to get a higher level of care. And so we were transferred. And really at the beginning, all they kept saying is, um, were you exposed to anybody who's sick? Um, were you around um, anybody who didn't feel well? Have you um, done gardening? Have you changed kitty litter? Have you done any of those things? And the answer was just continuously no. And so they went ahead, um, he was showing or displaying signs of a viral infection. And so they did a urine culture and a couple days later, we learned that Parker had a congenital CMV. And honestly, at that point, we had no idea what that meant. Um, however, we uh, did what all of us do today is get our phone and start looking up congenital CMV. And I will tell you, it was incredibly scary. Um, it was incredibly scary because the things that you find online are really um, the worst case scenarios, as well as the fact that congenital CMV can have an incredibly broad array of impact on, um, on babies and on, um, you know, and on children. And so we didn't know what to expect. We just know that we started really down this journey of um, he was moved from right next to the nurse's station to a room that was in isolation. We ended up having to gown and glove every single time we interacted with him. Um, he was in the NICU, so we didn't have lots of family who was um, coming to visit 
but all of that um, potential was completely shut off at that point. And so we spent the next 10 days in the NICU. Really the biggest thing that Parker was experiencing um, when he was in the NICU was his bilirubin levels just continued to get higher and higher and higher. And so what we learned is that his spleen was enlarged and his liver was enlarged and inflamed. And that is what was causing um, the bilirubin to go up. And so we spent many days on phototherapy. So he was on a billy blanket along with the billy lights. And really our entire goal at that point was for him to eat. So that way he could flush his system. And so um, luckily we were able to um, kind of change the trend of his bilirubin um, increasing to starting to decrease. And we ended up spending just about 10 days in the NICU. However, when we were in the NICU, that's when we got linked with the Oklahoma Family Network. And we had um, a, rep a family representative come in and talk to us about um, her experience with CMB. Um, we had social workers talk to us and get us linked with Sooner Start or Early Intervention because in Oklahoma, congenital CMV is an um, automatic qualifier for services. And so what that means is that whether or not you're seeing any delays or deficits, that that child who has been diagnosed with congenital CMV is immediately referred for services, for referral, um, for assessment, and then developing a, um, a treatment plan from there. And so Parker actually started um, his early intervention and started with a physical therapist when he was six weeks old. So that really is a very big picture overview of kind of um, how we were introduced into this um, world of CMV. And I will tell you, it the journey is different for every single family. Um, there can be a child who has really this very similar um, exposure pieces or exposure potential things um, that could have a very, very different outcome than Parker. And, um, but there are some things that are very, very common um, with children who have been infected and who are affected with CMV. And the reason that I say infected and affected, just because a mother transmits the virus to her unborn child doesn't mean that that child will see any effect or that child could be severely affected. And so, as I mentioned earlier, CMV has like this huge spectrum of impact that it can um, have on, on a child. Um, one of the very, very common things that we see with children with congenital CMV is they're born and they appear to be very healthy. However, they fail their newborn hearing screening. They don't have a family history of hearing loss. So they don't, you know, there's not an automatic um, genetic identification in regards to that. And so they'll fail hearing screening um, at the hospital, maybe fail their second hearing screening at the hospital, maybe get referred uh, to the health department for a third hearing screening and fail all of those. And then um, learn that that newborn has 
sensorineural hearing loss. Um, actually, congenital CMV is the leading cause of sensorineural hearing loss in children. And so um, there are families who identify or learn about CMV through that avenue. Um, or there will be families like Parker and our family, um, but really those, those newborns who are sick per se or symptomatic um, at birth is 10% or less. And so there are a majority of the babies that are born infected with CMV, we don't even know because it is not something we routinely screen for during newborn screening. And so um, we were fortunate in the aspect of, we did get a diagnosis early and we were able to get to interventions early. However, not every family has that opportunity and may not recognize or learn about a congenital CMV diagnosis um, or even anything about, hear about CMV until far later um, in that child's life. Um, the effect, like I said, it can go from failing a hearing screening or being very, very sick like Parker, or unfortunately, um, it can be fatal um, just because of the impact on the development of the organs. And so Parker has a multitude of secondary diagnosis as a result of the um, congenital CMV. So where Parker was mostly affected is his brain development. Um, and so Parker has cerebral palsy. He has epilepsy. He has polymicrogyria, which is a malformation of the brain um, where there are, the brain doesn't form um, normally per se. And he has lots of small folds in his brain that shouldn't be there. And so they're not deep folds, but they're very small folds, but they're numerous. Um, he also has um, the impact that we've learned is that malform malformation of the brain is in the frontal lobe. And so the frontal lobe of the brain affects executive functioning, emotional control, impulse control, um, and really all of those interpersonal things that people need to have to be successful in life. Um, in addition to that, he has, um, very, he's got um, delays in regards to his fine motor development as well as, as his gross motor development. Um, Parker didn't have good health, head control until he was, he may have been about eight months old before he really had good head control. Um, he had delayed milestones, you know, he didn't roll over um, like Jordan did um, at the, in the same time frame or um, developmentally appropriate per se, or those things, those developmental milestones, even though he had already started in early intervention. Um, he didn't sit up on his own until he was close to 18 months old. Um, he started using a reverse walker at 18 months old and um, didn't walk independently until he was almost three. Um, you know, he had um, AFOs and SMOs, so orthotics for his feet to help give him his feet and his joints the strength to be able to even be weight bearing. So, um, 
you know, Parker has experienced a lot, but all of those things, and Parker is an amazing little boy who is incredibly loving, um, and we are so blessed to have him. Kara, tell us more about who Parker is today and who he is beyond his diagnoses. Oh, Parker is a nine-year-old little boy who loves video games and farts, just like <laughs> all young boys at that age. He loves jumping on the trampoline. He loves um, he loves his family, his puppies. Um, he loves to entertain or be the center of attention. If he sees a microphone, you better watch out because he wants the microphone. He wants to tell jokes. Everybody knows that, Car uh, that Parker is a comedian. Um, he has performed in more than one talent show at school telling jokes. Um, he loves drums and he loves the guitar and he loves all types of music. He loves books. Um, but I say above and beyond all of that, he loves his family. Um, he loves big and we're so fortunate. I love that. Thank you for giving us a, a peek into your life with Parker. Um, as we're talking about CMV, we talked at the beginning that it affects one in 200 pregnancies. One in eight of those experience long-term developmental impacts from CMV, like you mentioned. And up to 80% of adults in the U.S. have had a CMV infection by age 40. So this is a common viral infection. We're going to get to talking about prevention and screening, but I want to start with a larger question here, Kara. And you have been in public health, like we said, for almost 20 years. Um, and this was not something that was extremely familiar to you before your own journey with it. So why are we not talking as a society more about CMV? Um, unfortunately, I will tell you that is the question that all of us families that have been impacted by congenital CMV ask. Why were we not educated? Why didn't we know? And I will tell you, um, when I went back and talked to my OB, when I've talked to our neurologist, when I've talked to really all kinds of providers, the first thing that they say is, well, we don't want to create additional anxieties because there's nothing you can do. However, that's not incredibly true. Um, like I said, it is a virus and we know that there are viruses all over the place, right? And we're exposed to viruses every single day. We know that. Um, However, if a woman who is pregnant makes some basic behavioral modifications and takes some basic um, safeguards, she can reduce her risk. And so um, when we ask providers, that is the foundational question that we hear or the foundational answer we hear over and over and over. Well, there's nothing you can do and there's so many things that a pregnant woman has to worry about, we don't want to scare her. And in my opinion, if a pregnant woman knows that there is a risk or that she has some risk factors, then she can make behavioral changes. She should be afforded the opportunity to make the changes that she sees fit for herself, for her unborn child and for her family. And so when I talk about some behavior modifications or some things that can be done, 
really, truly very, very, very simple things. Making sure that we're effectively washing our hands with hot water for 20 seconds after we come in contact with bodily fluids. So if we have been around a young child and we have changed a diaper or we are working in a daycare center and a child slobbers on a toy and we pick that toy up. Um, any bodily fluid, we wanna make sure that we're washing our hands with hot soapy water. We wanna make sure that we're minimizing our exposure to bodily fluids. And when I'm talking bodily fluids, I'm talking about saliva. I'm talking about urine from young children. Um, and then obviously blood is a bodily fluid as well. Um, but really the two that we um, see with high transmission rates is saliva and urine. And so if you are a mom of a young child, um, ages one to three or four, about 70% of those children have come in contact with and are carrying the virus at any given time. However, if a healthy individual is exposed to the virus, like you said, about 80% of people have been exposed by the time they're 40. If a healthy individual is exposed to the virus, they may have some basic viral symptoms, maybe a sore throat, maybe a runny nose, maybe a little bit of fatigue, um, or maybe nothing at all. But that virus, they're exposed, they're infected, their body is able to fight it off, and they go about their business, and then they just have antibodies. However, that pregnant woman that gets exposed she then has the uh, potential to pass the virus to her unborn developing um, child. And that's where that risk factor is propelled significantly. And that's, that's the area that we really, really wanna make sure that we are looking at um, and making those behavioral changes. So risk factors, being around young children, specifically young children who are in a daycare setting who are exposed to other young children, um, so if you are a mom to a young child and you are pregnant, making sure that you're being very, very careful with not um, sharing drinks, sharing utensils, putting the pacifier in your mouth to clean it off when it falls on the ground, um, sharing toothbrushes, any of those things. And I know that when having a young toddler, like I did when I was pregnant with Parker, um, your plate as mom is like, has like a big flashing neon sign and for whatever reason, it is so much more tasty than whatever is on your child's plate, that toddler's plate, right? So just making sure that we're not sharing the utensils and we're not sharing the food. Um, we're not allowing a young child to drink after us or we drink after that young child. When we give kisses to our toddlers, that we give kisses on our cheek, forehead, or top of the head, just for that time that we are pregnant, not for that child's entire life, just for those 40 weeks. And those are just some very basic recommendations and behavior modifications that can reduce the risk for a woman um, to get exposed as well as trans transmit the virus to her unborn child. Definitely things that every mom uh, or person who works um, in a childcare facility who is pregnant needs to know. And I know when we've talked previously, I have been pregnant three times. I knew nothing about CMV. I had not heard about it until I had the opportunity to talk with you. And like you said, had I had that opportunity to be educated, I certainly would have 
made some of these behavior modifications that you're talking about just to know um, that I was keeping my, my unborn baby safe. So I like that you talked about if we just could give more pregnant women the chance uh, to make that decision for, for themselves, um, we could really make a difference. Um, one you know, of the when other we, oh, I'm sorry. You um, when, we, when we know better, we do better, right? So it's just that basic thing of let me know so that I can make a good decision and I can make an educated decision. Absolutely. Another key factor here is that CMV is not included in Oklahoma newborn screenings, nor is it part currently of the CDC recommended universal newborn screening panel. And like you mentioned earlier, Parker was sick when he was born. So you knew enough to get those tests done, but that's not always the case. I think you said 10% um, are symptomatic and the other 90% are not. So some families don't see that impact until later. What do parents need to know about potential signs and symptoms, their right to request screening and again, why that early detection of CMV is so important. So first and foremost, you know, making sure that we're aware of developmental milestones. And if a, um, you know, a newborn is missing or not hitting that de developmental milestone, going ahead and contacting um, the health department um, and early intervention, the Sooner Start program, so that they can get assessed because the earlier we're able to have interventions for a child, and that's not just with CMV, that's any baby who is not meeting developmental milestones. Um, the earlier we get that intervention, the better outcomes they're going to have in life because we're able to change those neural pathways and the brain is such an amazing, amazing organ that we can do things early in life to help develop alternative pathways. So the first and foremost is if your, um, if your baby is missing developmental milestones, if your baby has failed those newborn hearing screenings, um, in other states there is legislation that has been passed that if a newborn fails three hearing screenings that they're automatically screened for CMB. That's important because for a diagnosis of congenital CMV, that diagnosis has to be made before 21 days old. And so if we like kind of the pattern or the, the process is newborn screening happens at the hospital. If they fail, they do a repeat before discharge. If they still fail, they then get that referral to the health department or to an audiologist um, through their provider. If they fail that third time, automatically request um, a CMB screen because that would at least tell us whether or not um, that baby has been infected with CMB. Um, that would be the first and foremost thing. The second thing that I would say is anybody can request a CMB screening. Um, you can request it when you're pregnant to determine whether or not you have antibodies and if you've ever been exposed to the virus before. Um, However, that wouldn't mean, if you did have antibodies, that wouldn't mean necessarily that you couldn't get it a different strain and pass that to your unborn child. So that's really the reason that there's not universal um, prenatal screening. 
However, it's something that can be requested at that very first lab, that 12 week lab that they draw all kinds of blood anyway. Go ahead and have that screen done so that way you know where your risk factor stands. Um, after the baby is born, when they're doing newborn screening, they can do a very easy saliva collection or a urine collection and do the test and the test is like less than $50 and it is covered by in most insurances as well as Medicaid. And so we're looking at a test that is very, very uh, minute in the big scale of things when we're talking about costs that could really help a family um, navigate their journey if they are um, told that their, their newborn is <clears throat> infected with CMV. Again, just because a baby is infected with CMV does not mean that they will necessarily have a long-term developmental effect, or it could mean that they will, and it could also mean that that developmental effect comes later in life because CMV is considered progressive. So for example, with Parker, he didn't fail his newborn hearing screening. Even though he was very sick, he didn't fail his newborn hearing screening. However, um, Parker is screened every three months and he is seen routinely um, with Hearts for Hearing um, and an audiologist. He is screened every three months routinely. Well, we noticed right after a, a normal hearing screen in November, we noticed right after Christmas that he was turning up the television really loud. And so um, right before his seventh birthday, we got in and um, got screened again. And he had, we learned that he had um, moderate to severe loss in his left ear and um, profound loss in his right ear for certain decimals. So we continue our screening. Luckily, we had the opportunity to do a trial um, of an antiviral medication that we, he was able to take for six months. And we haven't seen any impact since right before he was seven and he's nine. So it's been two years and he's been stable. Um, when a baby is diagnosed as a newborn, the recommended treatment is antiviral medications for six to 12 months. Um, and those antivirals, really what they are designed to do is to lessen the viral load so that the virus, um, we can stop the virus from impacting the brain development, the organs and that type of thing. As well as if a woman is pregnant and she learns that she has um, been recently exposed to CMV, maybe she's not feeling well. I will tell you, thinking back to my pregnancy with Parker, I had, I had gotten, we went to Florida to visit family for Christmas and on the way back, all of us got sick and we just thought it was a cold. You know, my daughter was sick. My husband was sick. I was sick. And then after that, um, in January, I remember going to the urgent care because my ears hurt. In February, I went back to the urgent care because my throat hurt. And really what we have learned is that more than likely I was exposed probably um, in that time frame, And that's when um, I got the CMB. And so if a woman is not feeling well, talk to her OB and say, hey, can you just do um, blood work and determine my viral, you know, to, to determine my titer levels. And we want to look at the IgG and the IgM because that will tell us 
one, whether or not she's been exposed in the past or she's had a recent infection. And so if she has had a recent infection, an infectious disease physician can um, work with her maternal, um, her OB or her maternal family medicine physician, and she can start antiviral medications while she's still pregnant. And then also lessen the impact of the virus on her unborn child. And we have families here within our network in Oklahoma who did antiviral treatments um, while mom was pregnant and her, the impact on the, on the kiddo is less severe. Um, however, we also have families who have done antivirals and have had still the same impact. And so it's not a 100% treatment, but it's another option when we're looking at what the potential could be. Such great information for parents to have. What, what are your hopes in terms of newborn screenings that CMV would become part of those either nationally or in Oklahoma? And how can local parents help advocate for that change? Absolutely. So Minnesota, um, this past legislative session was the very first state in the nation to pass universal screening for all newborns um, on part as part of their newborn screening panel that they do for every single baby born in Minnesota. And truly, that's where I would love to see Oklahoma get. I would love to see every baby screened because if every, every baby is screened, then we know. And if we know, we can put those measures in place to help with the, those outcomes. And early intervention works. Getting a therapist, whether it's an occupational therapist or a physical therapist or a speech therapist to be able to work with that baby as soon and as early as possible, that's going to really have a significant difference in the tra trajectory of that child's life. And so that is what I wanna see. I want to see universal newborn screening for every single baby born in Oklahoma. I mean, I wanna see it for every baby born in the nation, but right now my focus is in Oklahoma because this is where we live and our children are important. My child is important all of the other children that are born and all of the babies that are born in Oklahoma are important. They're our future. And so advocating for universal newborn screening, but until we get to that point of universal newborn screening, if you are pregnant, just ask for that test. Like I said, it's $50. Um, and if, if I could have paid $50 for a test, it could have, you know, it, it could have changed things. Parker was sick. And so we had, I guess you would say the benefit of knowing early, but not every family knows that early and not every child is going to be symptomatic or sick like Parker was. And so advocating for yourself as a pregnant woman, advocating for your unborn child, and advocating for your newborn once your newborn, um, once that baby is born and asking for those screenings. It gives us at least a peace of mind to say, no, they're not in infected or yes, they are. And so I can start looking and being more aware. I can have a heightened sense of awareness of developmental milestones that are being missed. Um, potentially um, hearing, you know, hearing loss that may be expected or in, you know, being experienced by that child. 
And so that is my biggest thing. I think every parent should have a choice as to um, how they move through their pregnancy journey. And I think having the ability to just be educated and to know what those risks are so that way you can minimize your risk factors um, to have a healthy baby. I mean, that's what we all want, right? If every time somebody says, learns that you're pregnant, well, what do you want, a boy or a girl? A lot of, you hear a lot of the time, I just want a healthy baby. We all want a healthy baby. But what if our baby is not healthy? What can we do to make sure that our baby has the greatest opportunity for success um, as they grow into adulthood? Absolutely. And I would say we all have that shared responsibility to make sure that the families around us, even if our families aren't personally affected, um, to make sure that the people, the kids around us have those great opportunities for success. As we wrap up today, Kara, whether it is in your advocacy work, out in the community, in your home, at work, where, where are you finding the greatest hope in your life right now? Um, honestly, I find hope in my children and seeing, I mean, I, I've talked a lot about Parker, but Jordan, his big sister, um, there's a lot of hope with her too, because I will tell you, they may, um, you know, they're siblings. And so they have their internal struggles and they fight amongst each other, but she is his biggest supporter. She is his fiercest protector. She is truly one of his biggest advocates. She has educated and advocated um, when she has had a child care provider um, who was pregnant, told them about CMB, wanted to share videos of Parker and wanted to share our journey with that um, pregnant caregiver, you know? And so she is, um, she is a force to be reckoned with. And I know that she would do anything and everything for Parker. And she has shown it time and time again, just whether it's being supportive on times that we are doing advocacy work. Um, you know, we've done a, um, just an awareness run. Um, we've, for several years, we did that. COVID ended up um, stopping that. And then we've moved to the Oklahoma City metro area. And so that is something that we're looking at. Hopefully, um, I don't know that I'm going to be able to get it done this year, but next year, um, an awareness run where we're just educating people um, and an opportunity to raise funds. Um, really, I would say, and then Parker, while yes, he has a lot of diagnosis, he's got a lot of things going on, but he really truly is a phenomenal little boy and all people who come in contact with him, um, he makes a mark and he leaves an impression. And so um, that is where I really have incredible hope. I have incredible hope for him and his ability to live independently and be a successful adult as well as advocate for himself when that time comes. And then his sister, who, like I said, um, she is just an absolutely amazing advocate um, and protector for her little brother. You have two incredible kids and they are blessed with a really incredible mom too. Thank you so much, Kara, for joining me. Thank you for sharing Parker and your family with us today and for all the advocacy work that you are continuing to do on behalf of all of our families. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me and allowing me to share our story today. Thanks everyone for listening.
Join us next time on Raising OKC Kids.